0: Father God, my prayer today is that you will bid our sad divisions cease. And that your son will be the king of peace. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Christmas is a time in which many look forward to getting together with their families. But it's also a time when old feuds are renewed to live for another year. Uh, some of these feuds are quite harmless, like the ridiculous rivals, uh, sib- but the rivalry between siblings. I know at, in our Christmas house, um, we have every Christmas time a renewed wrestling match between me and my brothers, just so I can assert my dominance one more year um, over them. And so we, we have that Christmas tradition. And uh, yes, it is quite the feud. I mean, things are falling over. Mom's making us pay for lamps, you know, things like that. So Um, other rivalries, however, are just outright dysfunctional. Some of these feuds are evidenced only by the subtle passive aggressive comments that are made at the dinner table, while others are as blatant as if the Hatfields and McCoy's were to try to throw a Christmas party and have white elephant as the main, uh, event that they were going to do in that history shows that humanity has the tragic talent of fracturing into millions of pieces. We have a sad, tra- we, had a, we have a sad talent of dividing, don't we? Feuding, setting up rivalries. And these fracturings often lead to insurmountable chasms, and that from a human perspective, have no hope of ever being bridged again. Wounds that never get healed, hatreds that never cool, jealousies that never die, prejudices that live on for generations and so on. I think many of us, because we're humans, have experienced this type, these kinds of sad, tragic divisions. Maybe we've suffered the death of a close friendship, the gradual cooling of a once burning hot marital affection, or perhaps we've been a part of a church schism where people have separated apart and a once thriving body of believers has now become an ugly dismembered mess one thing is certain division among the people of god is easy come and hard to go once the wound has been inflicted our sinful hearts tend to let it fester left to ourselves these small separations these sad divisions tend to become great divides now that said Knowing our propensity to divide, here's the question What hope do we have that we, ever dividing people, that we, angry and feuding people, we who like to set up rivalries among friends, we who so easily break into so many pieces, what hope do we have that we, as God's people, will ever enjoy lasting peace and unity? I mean, we sing Christmas hymns that sing of the hope of peace on earth. And yet as 2020 has shown, peace on earth just doesn't seem to be a reality. With believers even turning against each other, churches kind of falling to the wayside, dividing in half over opinions and over temporary things. So in what or in whom do we have hope that we will ever have unity even amongst ourselves, let alone peace complete on earth? Well, it's to this question that Ezekiel 37 tells of a Davidic shepherd who is to come and who will unite God's people around himself by dealing with their sin and establishing the eternal presence of God. And in this, we are given a hope of lasting peace that is centered on Christ our shepherd. So again, you might not have ever thought you'd be sitting in an Advent series going through Ezekiel of all places. But by the end of this time, my hope is that you will see that the Christmas hope of peace and unity and rest among men is found only in Jesus, the Savior, our shepherd. In Ezekiel 37, 16, God gives the prophet a command, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and for the people that are associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him. Now, if we're to understand and appreciate what happens next, it's important that we understand the background behind these two national sticks, Judah and Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is just another name for those northern tribes in Israel, right? They're also called Samaria. Sometimes in the Old Testament, they're just called Israel, but you had Israel to the north, Samaria to the north, Judah to the south. Now, from the outset of their entrance into the promised land, God's people were never really unified. They came into the land, they conquered, they took it over. And then in Judges, almost immediately, we see that because there was no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes, which also means every tribe did what was right in its own eyes. They were warring against each other, setting up shrines, setting up idols, creating whole new priesthoods, creating whole new uh, religious systems. And this division continued even into Saul's reign, and the hope was that Saul would bring them together, and he drastically failed as God's people lay dead and slain on Mount Geboah. It was not until the golden age of David's reign that the people of God were unified into one. With Jerusalem, the, the place of God's presence set up in the central location so that those who were north, those who were south would come together and be unified by the central hub of the Jerusalem tabernacle, where they would all come together once a year, celebrate, all come together and look to Yahweh, their God, the one who saved them. And so it was through David that Israel was one nation solidly centralized under the reign of God. That's great until David died. And then things started to fall apart. The Israelite kings began introducing idolatry into the land. Solomon, for example, built the temple of God. And we know him for building the temple of God, but far too few of us know that he also built temples, to Chemosh, Molech, Ashtoreth, and all these gods that are associated with child sacrifice and all these things. And he introduces idolatry into the land. And as a punishment, God says that because his people have broken faith with him, he's going to break the nation in half. And that promise is fulfilled in Second Chronicles 10 after Solomon died. When Jeroboam comes and incites a rebellion, then Ephraim recognizes Jeroboam as king. Judah recognizes Rehoboam as king. And from that moment, the people of God were split in half they had a stormy relationship through and through. Sometimes they were allies, but most times they were enemies. At one point, Ephraim, the northern tribes of Israel, even threatened to join a coalition of of Syrians and invade Judah and destroy the capital, kill its king. This is a bitter rivalry. This is no Red River shootout here, right? This is a Jordan River slaughter. I mean, this is the kind of rivalry we've We've dealt with to be more adequate. Don't think uh, accurate. Don't think about your favorite college team rivalry or your little sibling squabbles. No, think more of North and South Korea. That's the kind of divide. Think of the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo on one side, and the Republic of Congo on the other side. So divided, with hostility, war, and murder. Though also Ephraim and Judah were hopelessly divided. And the dream of reunification was a fleeting dream. The stick of Israel had definitively been broken in half and no king after David could bring it back together again. An unbridgeable chasm lay between the two halves of the people of God. Now, again, some of you may have experiences with these kinds of unbridgeable chasms, these Things that happen in once solid relationships that have now broken you, broken apart. Think of that old friend that you only now remember with intense emotional pain and deep wounding. You remember that best buddy that you had until suddenly that best buddy said something that got on your nerve and then he kept saying something that continued to hurt and the wound festered and the separation divided. And now you simply cannot imagine a world in this universe in which the two of you will ever be friends again. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's an alienated family member like a daughter or a child. Maybe you've seen it in church. Maybe you sit on one side of the sanctuary so you don't have to see the person on the other side. And any kind of inclination that one day you two might actually sit together is far-fetched. My friends, at the end of the day, the people of God are just people. And we are just as prone to split and divide just as easily as anyone can. The New Testament shows this clearly. You go to the New Testament letters and you still see rivalries. Paul and Barnabas split up over Mark. And then you have it getting so bad in the Philippian church that Paul, for all generations forevermore to see that there's two ladies in the church who were once godly, but now hate each other. And he has to command the Philippians, help them to agree in the Lord. In other words, tell them that whatever it is they're bickering about, it's not important enough because they can agree in God. So we're just, we're prone to this and these unbridgeable chasms will continue to plague us as the people of God, as long as we continue to struggle with sin and selfishness. As long as you can answer the question, am I a sinner? As long as the answer to that question is, yes, you will struggle with divisions. There's no hope of breaking out of that as long as sin and selfishness reside. But praise God, he has not left us to our own vices. He has not left us in our divisions. As the rest of Ezekiel 37 shows, God can mend what's been broken. And so if you are someone who has that relationship that's been broken, maybe you're someone that has that person sitting on the other side of the church, or you've got that family member. And yes, you both claim Jesus as savior, but you just don't see any way of coming back together again. Find hope in Ezekiel 37's promise. Ezekiel takes two sticks. One has the name of Judah written on it. And the other Ephraim, these are two sticks broken apart from each other Never again can they be brought back together by a human king. And yet God commands Ezekiel to take the sticks and to join them together into one stick. God goes on to explain. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick and they may that they may become one in my hand. This is an astounding promise. God could have just as easily have said, "I will bring North and South Korea back together again. I will make all the warring nations of Africa one country. I will bring the hateful, unforgiving ex-husband and the hateful, embittered ex-wife back to reconciliation. I will glue that split church." back together again. I mean, this is crazy, astounding promise. Think of your worst enemy becoming a brother or sister, becoming one even. That's the kind of promise that God is making here. Again, we have to put ourselves in their shoes to appreciate what God is promising. Northern Israel, if Ephraim was completely annihilated, some historical records show that the, the earth was still black because of the, the fire in the, the scorched earth kind of principle that the Assyrians brought with them. Not only that, they, they took the Samaritans that lived there, the Israelites, the true blood Israelites that lived there, and they put them into Assyria, and then they repopulated it with dispersed people groups of other nations. That's how they, it was cultural annihilation. And not only that, Judah now is broken with nothing but the ruins and remains of the temple and the city, dead bodies laying all over the place. So the idea of God bringing these two completely annihilated countries back together and becoming one nation is nothing short of laughable. Nothing short of ridiculous. And yet, that's exactly what God has promised. His people will not remain fractured and divided forever. There will be a resurrection and it will be followed by restoration, and it will be followed by reunification. He would raise up his people, bring them back together into one, thereby securing complete and perfect unity. So let's talk about this unity. I don't know of anyone in their right mind that wouldn't say, at least verbally, that they want peace. I don't know if anyone in their right mind, they wouldn't say that they want unity. In our day, there's a lot of talk about unity. Those who call for unity, I believe, have rightly seen the deep divisions that are inherent in mankind. They're right. We're divided. We're broken. We're fractured. The millions of pieces. We're worse than Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty still had pieces to try to be put together. We don't even have that. Because the moment we have a piece, it fractures into more pieces.
1: And yet, in all the cries for unity, the question remains
0: unified around what? You know, oftentimes when I have friends that are lost or people that don't know Jesus and they talk of, I just wish we could get along. I wish that we could be unified. I ask that question unified around what exactly?
1: And I'm met with blank stares. My friends, in
0: order for it to be unity, there has to be a central point, right? There has to be a connection point. There has to be a center to that unity. Unity for the sake of unity is not real unity. Just to say that we're unified, but not really truly be unified around something is not real unity. Unity by its very nature must have a center. Just as the universe has the sun, our solar system has a sun that revolves around everything and keeps that solar system spinning. In the same way, unity must have a sun, must have some kind of central point that brings us together. So what is it? What exactly do we hope will bring us together? Now, friends, I, I hope this will correct some of the bad thinking about unity that modern churches have made in our day, we have modern churches that are seeking to be relevant. In the name of unity, we'll sacrifice our most important doctrines. In the name of peace, we'll sacrifice things like you must believe in Jesus to be saved. We'll sacrifice things like sin is deadly. We'll sacrifice those kinds of statements because we don't want to alienate others from us. The irony of it all is that churches that that give up their gospel centrality for the sake of unity already forfeited it. This is why you hear gospel, 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 because that is the only hope we as the people of God will ever really stay together. We're not unified in politics. We're not unified in favorite football teams. We're not unified in traditions. We're not unified by presidents. We're not unified by nationality. We can only be forever unified under one person. Under Christ. Any kind of study of history shows you that the moment somebody seeks unity in anything else, it falls apart. Doesn't it? Our one nation under God has... Fractured many, many, many times. Our clubs, our groups, our political parties, everything that we have looked to for some kind of unification have broken to pieces many times. There's only one thing that can bring people of God together and
1: keep them together. And that's the gospel.
0: And if we think that anything else can unify us, we're living a dream. We're living... In, in a false reality of hope that anything could bring us together outside of Jesus, outside of Christ, outside of faith in him. And so the question that I want to ask today is when God thinks about unity, what does he think about? What is God's vision of unity for his people? God has a vision in Ezekiel 37 of a unified people of bringing Judah and Ephraim back together into one stick in his hand. But what exactly does that look like? If we don't understand what that unity looks like, we'll never really attain it. And so here's what we're going to see. The unity that is proclaimed in Ezekiel 37 comes with a central hope of one coming king, shepherd, the central hope of the death of sin, and the central hope of God's eternal presence among us. You see that? So so very simply, what are we unified on? Jesus is king. We have a new David. We are called to be a holy people and reject sin. And God wants to establish his presence with us. Those three truths are central to God's vision of unity in Ezekiel 37. So let's just go one by one. The first aspect of central hope in Ezekiel 37 is that God is going to provide a king for his people. God envisions a people unified around a Davidic shepherd. He says, one king, and you see this over and over, one king, one king. I mean, Ezekiel is filled with that language. There is one king, not a succession of kings, not a a listing of historic kings. No, just one king. One king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations. They shall no longer be divided into two kingdoms. In this way, Ezekiel orders, in the way that he's ordering the sentence, it's one king and then one nation. You understand? It's not one nation and then one king. It's one king. They're given one king, and then they are subsequently brought together into one nation. The unity that they have will be only because God raises up a king. God raises up a shepherd. Now, what kind of king does God have in mind here? Well, he'll be such a king that Israel will not need another king. Have you ever just basked in the moment of the fact that Jesus is sufficient enough of a king for you that you need no other? That for all history, there will be one man's name that is sufficient to lead you for all eternity. That, that because he has come, because he has taken on flesh, because he has died on the cross, because he has resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God, forevermore, we only have one true king. And that's the only true king that we will ever need. Because everything in him is sufficient. He has no failings that he must be voted out of office. There is no rating system that he falls short in. He is the king. He is the sufficient king. There will be no need for split kingdoms. This one sufficient king will be their prince forever. From the moment he ascends the throne, God's people need no one else. We have him. He'll reign forever. Furthermore, he's going to be a servant. The title servant often refers to God's leaders in the Old Testament. The word servant means that this is an individual who doesn't do his own will doesn't have his own agenda. He does the will of God. So he's not like Solomon, who has this agenda to build this kingdom and build all these things to these other gods. No, this is a a king, just like David, who has a heart that is after God's own heart. This is a king who aligns himself up with the will and agenda of God. His political agenda is simply that God will reign in every nation on earth. His, his economic agenda is simply that he will provide all that we need. His sociological agenda is simply to bring together people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's him. Living out God's dream on earth. Bringing about God's vision and God's way.
1: So we see he'll be a sufficient king. He'll be a
0: servant king. And finally, he will be a shepherd king. It is interesting that in verse 24, God shifts from speaking to a king to speaking of a shepherd. When you just say the word king, we typically think of like King George or whatever, you know, these kind of maniac type people that are so far into themselves that they don't do anybody any good. But God wants everybody to understand that that's not the kind of king he has in mind. This is a shepherd king. And with the image of shepherd, comes this idea of a tender, leading, caring, nourishing, feeding, protective type leader. This shepherd who provides for all that we need. You know, Psalm 23, which I promised Adam I would not quote because he's going to preach on it in a few weeks. Jesus is that kind of shepherd. Now, as it applies to us, I think it's good for us when we, when we think about this king and the shepherd that we remember that our primary hope is centered on King Jesus, right? If I were to ask you at the end of 2020, what has 2020 taught you about unity and peace? What has 2020 taught you about yourself? What has 2020 taught you about humanity as a whole? What has 2020 taught you about your leaders? All leaders, don't care which side they are on. I hope that has continued to show you just how insufficient you are, how insufficient they are, how broken this world is, and why Jesus is enough. A lot of people think that that's over-spiritualizing. We live in the real world, Justin. This is Jesus's world. This is the real world. He's the king. That's not a metaphorical title. That's a real title. Who owns America? Christ. (laughs) Let me just settle that. Who's in charge of China? Christ. Let's just settle that. He's not waiting to own China. He owns it now. It's his. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is the one king over all the nations. May not look like it right now, but believe it, it's true. And yet, we seem to to divide that off. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is king. But we really need this guy. Yeah, yeah, Jesus King. But we really need this policy. Yeah, yeah, Jesus King. But I really need that promotion in order to have peace. My friends, no, you don't. You need Christ. Jesus spoke of himself in John 10. He talked about himself as the good shepherd. And he spoke of you. When he's speaking to these people in Israel, he he talks to them and he and he, and he brings you into the conversation. He says that he has other sheep among other flocks, uh, other flocks, other pasture lands. And he says, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's what Jesus says in John 10. He has you in mind, as he was speaking to these Jews about what he had come to do, he had come to be the shepherd that God had promised. He was going to lay down his life for the sheep. This is how he brings them together. He lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. Then he says it again. I lay down my life for the sheep. My friends, that is the central means of our unity. We have a shepherd, he died, and our unity is blood-bought. Our peace is purchased by the red liquid that flowed down his arms from his head and down his back. And we have it forever because that
1: dead Savior rose again.
0: My friends, we might disagree about some minor squabbles over cloth over COVID, over politics, have one king.
1: And one day none of that will matter.
0: Christ died for sheep, and so we have a unity that's centered not on opinion, not on our traditions, not on our will, not on our wants, but on our shepherd king who has come. Now, God has a vision also that his people will be unified. And when they're unified, they will live holy lives. So it's a unity around holiness. Now, by holiness, I don't mean this moralistic lifestyle, right? God's not, God's not envisioning uh, this this kingdom in which everybody throws out there and burns their TV. Okay, so we're not talking about the super holiness mindset of this moralistic legalism that we have in mind when we typically say holiness. No, what he has in mind here is that when the shepherd king comes, when the new David reigns, he will set his people from free from their sins. They'll be free from sin. Here's what he says in verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslides. Now that word there actually means I will save them from dwelling in their sin, from living in their sin. That's how the actual words should be translated, in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they, will sh- and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, in verse 24, God repeats it again, that when David reigns, his people shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And we have two things in these verses, two promises. Number one, we will be clean from the stains of sin. We will be clean. Promise number two, we will be free to obey God. Is there anyone in this room bold enough to admit with me, confess that it is incredibly difficult to obey God? Knowing that we have all the regrets of the past sins that we've made, right? And all those, well, God says he's going to deal with both of those issues. He's going to clean you up from the past and he's going to make it so that you obey in the future. He's going to clean you up. He's going to wash the stains. Now the word defile in verse 23 refers to an uncleanness that keeps one from entering the presence of God. If you were this kind of unclean, you could not go into the Holy of Holies. You could not go into the holy place. You couldn't even step foot into the tabernacle. In fact, in Leviticus uh, chapter 22, verse three, God says that if anyone approaches him or any of his things in the tabernacle while being unclean, they are cut off from his presence. Cut off. I mean, that's, he just can't, he can't do it. God's like, you, you see that old uh, illustration of putting two magnets on opposite ends. You know, they don't, they don't attract. They start to push each other together against each other. Um, that's kind of what God does with sin. He just can't come together with uncleanness. He is a holy God. This is a teaching that we have missed in most of our modern churches. He is a holy God. He is the absolute picture of perfection. And so he can't,
1: he won't be around defilement. But here's what he
0: will do he will wash them, he will rid them of the idols that pollute them. No more will they dwell in sin. If uncleanness is the problem, he will clean the uncleanness so they can come into his presence. My friends, do you realize every single one of you that have the presence of God, you do so because you have been made clean from sin? You do so because there was a man who came, who died on the cross, and his blood washed the stains away. And now you have the clean clothes, that is his righteousness, that you may now approach God freely. That man took your stains, took your dirty clothes, and he swapped them so you could have his, so that now you could come into the presence of God anytime clean. Perhaps you're hearing this and you're someone who understands well the feeling of being unclean. My friends, I'm human. I understand what it's like to have regrets, to have uh, things that have happened to you or things that you have done that you are very much aware of, the stains of your sin, the residue of your guilt, the grime of your addictions, the way that people have treated you, the way that People have violated you, maybe the way that you have violated yourself. And you are very familiar with this feeling of just feeling dirty. Maybe it even comes in between you and your ability to pray. You bear this secret shame. You're worried about being outed and that others are going to find the dirt in your life. Sometimes you just don't even feel like God wouldn't even want to hear from someone like you. You must be that dirty. My friends, your hidden guilt that you're afraid of others to see what's publicly nailed to the cross is by trusting in Christ that you can be free from it forever. God washes dirty people. My goodness, my favorite part in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's almost the end of the year, so I've got to get it in at least five more times. My favorite part in the Chronicles of Narnia is where Eustace, who turns into a hideous, nasty dragon, tries to take off his own skin. He wants to stop being a dragon. He rips and he tears and it hurts and he's crying out. And it's not until Aslan comes and says, I must remove it for you. And the lion rips and tears and the story talks about how painful it was. But Once it was done, there lay the dead dragon carcass, and there was the new Eustace. That's the kind of washing that God gives. That's the kind of cleaning, the kind of scaly ripping that God can take off of you. You might not have ever been able to clean yourselves from those sins and shame. You might have had counseling. You may have talked to friends. You might have... Done everything you can, read all the self-help books, and yet you still just can't get rid of the fact that you've got that mold growing in the back of your heart. And it's in that that God says, you can't wash it, but I can. My friends, do you bask in the fact that even knowing that you have had these past guilts and these past sins and these past residues, that in Jesus you have been washed clean and now you can approach freely? Along with being clean from idolatry and guilt, now God says that we're able to obey. From the moment God's people received God's law, they were unable to obey. They heard God's voice. They heard the thunder. They saw the fire. They received the word of God from God himself. And in the very next chapter, they build a golden calf. My friends, we are those people that we know what we should do. We know the word. We have God's word in scripture it and yet it just seems impossible to obey it. But God says that in Christ, we not only get washed clean of our stains, but we're made able to obey. We should obey, but we can obey now. That's the difference. It's not just salvation by obedience. It's saved to obey, right? A lot of people think that they have to obey to be saved. Flip that you're saved so that you can obey. And now you're free to. Hebrews 10 captures it perfectly, that because Jesus, our our high priest, has come and has died, we are now able to draw near. No more exile, no more separation. How do we draw near? Well, in a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water.
1: And so there we have it. God envisions a people who can come together in holiness.
0: God envisions a people who will no longer be so sinful and so rebellious that they hate one another. Imagine that. Imagine a life free to live in a relationship that are free from gossip, free from envy, free from jealousy, free from strife, free from pride, free from lust. Do you think you could truly love someone when you're free from those things? Absolutely. To have that kind of unity. Jesus has dealt with the sin. So he's brought us reconciled to God. Jesus has dealt with our sin. So now we can be reconciled together. One of my friends posted on Facebook this week. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. That's what comes from Christ. He deals with the sin. He draws out the hatred. That's the wicked venom that it is. The envy, the pride, the gossipy. He, he draws that out and he brings out the divides so that we could truly enjoy one another. Now, one final aspect of God's vision of a re- reunified people is that his people will be unified in his presence. God doesn't want a unified people where he's off somewhere in the distance. God wants a unified people in which he is in the center of their midst. Can we just, I, I, just thinking about that thought makes my heart just sure with, with all kinds of the, whatever the, the, the millennials say, the feelings. I've got the feelings, okay? Can you just think about that for a moment? that God has a vision to bring you together with the people who are in this room and people who are in other nations with Venezuelans and Chinese and Russians and uh, Iraqians or, uh, you know, Iranians. He's working to bring you together with them. And he's working to bring you all together around him. The repeated promise, they shall be my people and I will be their God, is found in verses 23 and 27. And it's really a promise that God's dwelling place will be with them forever. Separation will be over. His sanctuary, his dwelling place will be in their midst forevermore, meaning that he will set up a lasting meeting place. No more broken temples. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and you see the broken temple, there will be no more broken temples no more exiles, no more separations from God. They will have their God and he will have them forever. This is the blessing of Christ. Advent. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us it is in Christ. Do you realize that our place, our meeting place where we come to dwell with God has changed into a person.
1: The temple
0: is no longer Brick and mortar buildings. You no longer have to go on pilgrimages as long as you have the person of Christ. He's the place where God meets and dwells with his people. He's the place that draws all nations to himself. He's the place where the spiritual sacrifices are made. He's the place where God hears the prayers of his people. He's the place where people can tread into the holy of holies to meet with the father. He's the place. He's the temple. He's the person. He's the one, the connecting point that brings all of us into the presence of God with him. It is in revelation 21 that we see this vision being brought to its proper fulfillment. As you know, in revelation, Christ returns, and he brings about the ancient promises of God. Here's what he says Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You can just close your eyes and meditate on this just for a second. Seriously, think about the words that we're about to read. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Who says that? God says that from his own throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And he himself will be with them as their God. Can you imagine someday you're going to audibly hear that? And who's going to say it? Not an angel, not a preacher, the one on the throne. They hear this big booming voice of the creator. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man. And it's definitive. Never again will we not be able to see our God. Never again will we be separated because of sin. Never again will we have divisions. No more parties. No more groups. No more cliques. Just one people. One shepherd under one God. And that's what we have to look forward to. The divides will be bridged. The fractures will be mended. And the broken people of God will be one. Now we sing Christmas carols. And the peace that's proclaimed in those Christmas carols is true because of Jesus, our shepherd. My friends, we have that peace. We have this unity. We've heard the gospel. You know it's true because you read it in scripture. I mean, it's right here where we talk about it. It's right here where we read it. Peace with God, peace with man. This is a Christ-centered unity. A shepherd-centered, sinless, holy, God's presence-filled unity. My friends, what's keeping us from enjoying that now? I mean, this is, I've heard a lot of amens about the day that Christ comes up and sets up that kingdom. Do you realize that's a now and not yet truth? Sure, we don't yet live in the perfect world free from sin, but Christ has unified us around Himself right now. We are sheep of one shepherd. Let me ask you: while we may have many deep disagreements about temporary things, maybe we do, maybe let's just let's just think of it. Maybe we do disagree. Let's just think of the, the worst disagreement we could have. The Cowboys will never make it to the Super Bowl.
1: Even in the midst of temporary disagreements. Are we unified in our satisfaction in the shepherd?
0: Are we together in our longing for green pastures? We might disagree about how to handle COVID or how, whether, you know, what it was or who was behind it or the policies with it. But does COVID equally, whether we think it's real or not, do we equally look at that and say, man, we need those green pastures. I mean, if any, I mean, if anything, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you've fallen on, any of the disagreements we've had in 2020, any of the things that people have been fighting about, all of it for the people of God should say, we really need our shepherd. We really need green pastors. Do we share a common mourning and a common agreement that sin is bad? And then do we share a common joy that our sins have been forgiven in Jesus? Let me ask you, do we fail to enjoy true unity because we can't get over the little sibling squabbles? So-and-so said something. So-and-so might think something about me. They
1: didn't say it, but I just know they think it. So-and-so posted on Facebook
0: about this. And we rob ourselves of something that Christ has bled to give us. We may not see eye to eye, but scripture calls all of us to have our eyes firmly fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. So even if we don't see eye to eye, our eyes should all be pointed at the same person in the same hope, in the same trajectory. Christmas is a great time to remember that if God can bring together two warring nations into one and reunify his broken, idolatrous, hate-filled, dark people in one shepherd into one sheep and give them all the presence of God, then he can solve whatever minor squabbles you've had this year.
1: My question is, is will your pride keep you from enjoying that? That's the one thing that seems to keep people from being truly unified. And my question has always been, do
0: we really want the peace that we sing of at Christmas? I mean, it's offered to us. It's been won for us. We sing about it. We long for it. We talk about how nice it would be. And yet, when there's an opportunity to agree in the Lord, I can't do that. My friends, this is an invitation from Ezekiel 37 to enjoy the unity that was bought by your good shepherd who laid down his life for you and for the person sitting next to you. We're going to have our elders in the back. If you need prayer, if you need help, if you need just to think through this tough year, we want to pray for you. It may take time for you to confess that maybe you have been prideful. Maybe others around you have been prideful. But this is a time for us to realize what we have in Jesus and what it is that really truly brings us together. And so if that's you, we want to invite you to pray. If you don't know Jesus, your hopes for peace and unity are fleeting and failing and they're a false dream because there's only one who can give you that peace. And so we want to talk to you. If you don't know Jesus, we want you to have that peace. But come back and pray with us. Come back and talk about Jesus with us. Let us tell you how you can enjoy that peace. And don't sit there in your divisions anymore. Let's pray. Father God, it is a sad tragedy how easily we break. How fragile we are as the people of God. How hurt our feelings can get. How broken our, uh, our own thoughts are about other people. And yet, Father... Jesus has come to bring us together into one flock under one shepherd. May we enjoy this gospel-centered, Christ-centered unity that he has bought on the cross. Thank you for Christmas, and thank you for the joy of peace that we have. We pray this in your son's name.